just roll through it without the laughter and it's funnier. All right, welcome to another episode of Gavin Gauchos. Today we are joined as usual with Matt Eisen, coach of the UCSB triathlon team, and we have Sean Harrington, our resident pro triathlete. Now you can follow them both on Instagram. We've got Sean Harrington at Big Shawnee Harry, and we've got Coach Matt at Coach Matt Triathlon Engineer. So we've got three main stories today. First, we're going to keep up with the pros because there are some interesting rule changes coming in the works this next year. And then we're going to talk about some recent activities that the UCSB triathlon team has been up to. And then we'll talk a little bit more to Sean about his recent race result in Waco, Texas. And he'll tell us a little about what happens when things don't go quite according to plan. So when is this rule change actually going to take place? Um, it essentially started taking place just before Kona with the races that would qualify for next year's Kona. Uh, what it comes down to is there used to be, for pros, a point system to get to Kona. And as with anything, you know, it the first year they have to kind of feel out how hard it is going to be to get to Kona. So they've been doing it for three, four years now. But it it got to a point where they, they essentially know what they need to do, you know, whether it's 3,000 points or 4,000 points. It kind of stabilizes, like, the back end. Can you give a little background on how people used to qualify to Kona? Uh, that's good. So um, unlike age groupers, pros would qualify for Kona or 73-point worlds via amassing points, which awarded higher consistent finishing instead of winning one race outright. The downside is it's highly possible that you have someone dominate an early season Ironman, get a little injured, but then be healthy by Kona, but not have enough points to race Kona. So you leave somebody who could be top five at Kona out of the field. And that would happen every year. There'd be somebody that was a potential, you know, maybe not win, but be very close to winning at Kona who didn't get in. Um, So to try and correct that, they have changed the system back to essentially how age groupers qualify. Each race awards a certain number of slots, each Ironman race. Same as in the age groups. Some races have three or four slots, so fourth place gets you a slot in Kona in the pro field. Some races only have one. Um, What is interesting is because it's the first year, nobody really knows how it's going to work out. So I think they're talking amongst amongst themselves, but uh, structuring their season becomes a question mark because let's say you got fourth in Kona or fifth in Kona um, before you would almost have enough points to just finish some races and get back to Kona next year. Now, fourth and fifth place don't get an automatic entry next year. So they could go do Ironman Arizona or Cozumel or um, you name it, early season Ironman. But if they go do that and another really good athlete goes and does it and they get second or third, they just burned a lot of matches and they still don't get their Kona slot. So... So they're no closer to actually getting to Kona, yeah. taking second place there, at one there, of those early season races. There will eventually be a roll down um, on some points at the end of the year. But again, it's you don't really know. So there's just a question mark hanging over um, how you get there. But somebody it does help is, let's say, Sebastian Keenley, Lionel Sanders, who both shat the bed in Kona this year. They got no points, basically. So... In the old system, they have no points. They're going to have to race quite a bit to get into Kona, get back there. But now they can just peek out for one 
really good Ironman late spring, early summer that traditionally has a weaker field and be pretty confident they can get an automatic entry there. What if someone good shows up there? There you go. It's the same. I've been under that system as an age grouper. For instance, at when I qualified for Kona at Arizona, there's going to be one slot in my age group. So I was reasonably confident. I was like, sorry if this comes off like an asshole. I was reasonably confident I was like top 10% in the world in my age group. But when there's one slot at a race, I was like some dude who's going to do really well at Kona could show up, beat me, and then I don't get to go at all. And that happens. Um, so, But that's what age groupers deal with. Same thing next year. Uh, I got beat by three Americans in Kona, and uh, two of them are good friends of mine and on my team. So I have, I'm lucky enough to like... I messaged one of them who did a race I want to do next year and said, hey, are you going back there? Because I think it's in both of our best interests if we don't have to race each other for a Kona slot. And neither one of them are doing the race I want to do. So it works out for me that I know them. But on the other hand, you don't really know. Like, there's one dude in America that I don't know that's floating around out there who can definitely beat me. I mean, there are a bunch more that can on any given day. Like, that's obvious. Do do you expect that the pros will then do a little bit of this, too, to try to divvy up... uh where each of them are going to qualify so they don't they'd be crazy not to all the all the smart ones i mean it's a small it's a small community so they got they have got to be talking and planning and it still doesn't fix this whole thing doesn't fix the big problem of kona is awesome because you have 30 guys who could be top five at every other iron man in the world you see the start list and you say these three guys are going to be one two three it's just a matter of the order and that's not nearly as much fun. So it doesn't fix their issue of trying to have two more races that are almost as exciting as Kona. Couldn't they just make uh, a couple particular races have three slots so that maybe Some that would of them draw, have more slots, draw more people in? They're still they're not pumping the prize money into it. Sponsors don't care. So, and we might talk about this a little bit later. There's not a large incentive for a pro to go all in on any race except for Kona, both in the build-up and uh, in in the race itself, so, outside of Kona, which leads to not fun races to watch. Most races are just a foregone conclusion before they start. So if you're a pro that's kind of on the bubble to qualify for Kona, what's your strategy? How do you pick your race? Or um, Your strategy there is to race a lot, of the smaller races, maybe you get an automatic slot on a roll down, but to push your racing, I would push my racing off. Like if I, let's say I took my pro card next year and wanted to qualify for Kona as like a pretty mid pack pro is what pretty much what I would be. Um, I would do like four Ironmans in the summer <laughs> where hopefully there are a lot of roll downs and then try and accumulate enough points that once all of the automatic slots are given out and they have like 10 point slots, that I'm one of the guys with the highest points that didn't get an automatic slot, but just earn those points through like four or five eighth place finishes in a small iron. I mean, that'd be a stretch for me, but like I'm giving an example. Like, But I mean, if I, if I you know look at what you look like after Kona, I mean, you're talking four or five weeks that each of those races takes away from your training. How are you performing at each of these you know, well enough to accumulate those points. I would tra- change the training to be more volume based um, to recover. I mean, this is assuming like I had time, like every in a perfect world, I would tra- change my training to be more volume based so I recover. And 
if I went if I went nine oh five instead of eight fifty four at Kona, I would have been able to walk the next day. Like you, and they get pretty. And these small Ironmans again, talking about the problem they have is it gets really really spaced out, and it's just not it. It's not a competitive thing to watch. So you can bleed um, ten minutes and still take yeah. the same place. Yeah, you can do things like you can ride harder, um, go out kind of hard on the run, and then walk chalk it in and not destroy your legs over the last 10K or last hour of the race, really. Because that's where most... I mean, most of my soreness came from the last hour, hour and a half of the race and trying to run hard down hills. In case you're wondering what the that sound is in the background, if you're really listening closely, we are also joined by Boulder the Dog, so we may hear a little bit from him later if he decides to come over with his squeaky toy. But for now, he's just chewing on a, a container full of peanut butter. So he's uh, having the time of his life, living his best life. <laughs> he's been a bit under the weather, so I didn't want to leave him alone while I went and filmed a podcast. Hi, so Boulder. He's getting some love. You can follow him at Furball Boulder. <laughs> you should definitely do that because he's <laughs> super, super cute and looking at me right now with these eyes like, will you play with me? Okay, so now back on the amateur level, of course, we have uh, the UCSB team. Now, this weekend we had some kind of recruiting event that was also a kind of a uh, mock triathlon. Is that right? Yeah. So um, we, as a school, we start really, really late because we're not on the semester system. And because of, I mean, I'm not, I'm not complaining. It's going to sound like I'm complaining. It's just because we have to get physicals and con- concussion testing done, we just cannot make the collegiate races that happen the first month of school. Like we just can't, everybody can't get registered while they're doing all their other stuff. Um, so we kind of miss out on being able to go to a real collegiate race in the fall. Do, do other collegiate teams have the same rigorous um, like policies for concussion testing and physicals? Or are we pretty unique in that respect? Well, some of it is this is just our second year, so it's uh, it's just disorganized at this point. Probably in three or four years, it'll flow much more smoothly. So other schools might have it and just have had it in place from the get-go. So like your physical in January counts for now. Um, so other schools might have it, but there's also like, I mean, the school wouldn't find out unless something went wrong, but we're not going to take that risk, right? So... I don't really, I don't really know. I'm not going to like pry around with other schools. But the big thing is, we start in the end of September instead of the middle of August. So there's just not time to make. I mean, one of the biggest races is the weekend we start school. Which race is that? Uh, at the Berkeley race, they do a draft legal, and well, they didn't do a draft legal this year, but traditionally they have. So this race that you did this weekend, um, I could. I could have sworn that on Facebook I saw another event that was kind of like this earlier in the year. Is this the second one or the first one? So we did a really, really small mock try that was like 20 minutes long, thinking we would be able to do like a bigger sprint triathlon, an official race later. But then we couldn't make it to the sprint triathlon, so I decided to just try and throw a more legit but still fake triathlon. Gaucho Man. Yeah, the Gaucho Man. um, Somewhere between a sprint and Olympic, so that the kids who have stayed for these seven weeks or however far we end of the semester, um, they can feel what it's like to, you know, do a longer event in a very safe and controlled atmosphere where we swim in the pool. We have guides out on course. So they'll see some friendly faces, that type of thing. Um, just like closer to legit, but not quite. 
No drafting penalties thrown out. Oh, you mean you don't have any motorcycles out there? We don't have any refs. I'm going to ref next year. That's for damn sure, though. So how many people did we bring out? 16, I counted. 16. Cool. Any standout performances? Um, Ranger Rick dominated the men's field because he's a beast. And I think he even scared a couple of the grad students out of showing up because they didn't, they didn't want to take him on. Cole and uh, Isaac talk a big game but did not show up to throw down with Ranger Rick. Um, Nicole Wallace, who's a sophomore and just a really, really good all-around endurance athlete. She does she does a lot of running. Um, comes from a, a running background, but she's taken to swimming really well. Uh, very naturally gifted on the bike. She won the women's and... I think uh, notably the, there was a freshman, yeah. Eddie, showed up and uh, really gave us a good show as well. Actually made it a, a bit of a race for Rick. Did. Um, so that was fun. Yeah, Eddie is a freak. Um, he's he's perfect for triathlon because he's really athletic and he's uh, really obsessed with working out. So he just needs his fix every day. So he'll be really, 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 really good. Um, I, w- I mean, I feel like he could be top. 40 in the country next year if he really tries maybe wow that's amazing have you introduced him to rod yet (laughs) i don't want to do that (laughs) we'll see no i mean he's just really really he comes from a a big time swim background and he's a he played a lot of other sports so he does have a running background and his dad did triathlons so he he has a road like he's just yeah he he grew up knowing knowing how to do all three sports and he just really likes to do it and then we had a great show of teamwork from um, Taya and Evie as they did the entire race side by side. That's where the drafting penalties are going to come into play next year. But isn't it kind of silly? I mean, when you're riding right next to someone, you don't get a draft, right? Yeah, that, I guess that's true. I think you slow each other down. I think that's... Because you want to wanna talk and chit-chat, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Got to make it more fun. Yeah. Millennials. <laughs> oh, come on. You, you qualify as a I millennial. I am a millennial. <laughs> I bitched about my, my the first year I I worked here. I bitched about millennials like all year to the kids, and yeah, they're only like five years younger than me. And then one of them finally, like the last race of the year, looked it up online and called me out on it. That like I am squarely a millennial. So do they know uh, all the memes that you don't know? I learn too much. Like I I learn a new word every day. I feel like you know. Actually, we're gonna start having a new generation. This is true. This is, I think this freshman class is not a millennials anymore. So 2001 is kind of when they are like basically. So yeah, these freshmen might be the start of the, the homelanders. Yeah. Basically the kids that grew up with the, the homeland department. Yeah. I've seen like 97 to two, like in that, in that range of being born that they're not even millennials anymore. Well, that's exciting. That, that really bodes well for the next, uh, you know, five or six years of the UCSB tri team. So we've oh, yeah. got some upcoming freshmen who are looking really, really strong. We've got some returners who are also really, really strong. So that means we'll probably have a pretty good showing at nationals this year then too. Yeah. Um, as a team, we will, I mean, I think for the next three to four years at least, like uh, if we just didn't get anybody of note over the next two years, we'd still be better and for we'd be better each year for the next three years. So now that Sean is officially gone from UCSB as a student and in racing as a professional on the outside, uh, let's turn over and talk about what he's been up to lately. So you did a, a race just this past weekend, is that right? That's correct. Or yeah. was it two weekends ago? Uh, it was one weekend ago. One one week ago. So that was in Waco, Texas, which was also Matt Eisen's uh, alma mater. Woo! Sick <laughs> <Sick'em> bears. 
All right. So what's the what's the history of that race? Why did why did you do that race? Well, there's actually not too much uh, history for the race because this is their first time doing it. Um, and so we, when me and Matt saw that they were offering it, and it was uh, one of the the races with the pro field, we kind of got excited about it. And uh, Matt figured it'd be an easy one for um, kind of do the logistics and the travel. He'd be able to help me out a little bit more. He kind of knew what was going on there. And so uh, it made a lot of sense to put it on the schedule. And uh, yeah, it was, I think it was a really good choice. We, I really enjoyed it. I would definitely go back again. So why don't you take us through uh, how the race went on race day? Uh, well, so I guess we can take a step back. Um, so the, they got a lot of um, rain just the, the week leading up to the race. Um, so they had had a ton of flooding and, and everything. So the, the race itself was supposed to have the swim in the river right there downtown at Brazos. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Brazos. The Brazos. Um, but, uh, because of all that rain, the, the river was not only running super fast, um, but it was also just, you know, too dirty and, um, full of bacteria and stuff. So there was no way Iron Man was going to let us. Um, swim in there so they had to cancel the swim um and so since there was no swim it was going to be a, a bike run uh format and there's no real easy way to do that um so what they decided on was similar to what we did at santa rosa which was a, a time trial start and uh and they just basically picked which the order for the pros randomly and so there was the day before in the meeting we just had a hat and we all threw our numbers in there and they just picked them out one at a time. And, you know, in the order that uh, they picked them out, that was the order we were going to start. So I, I drew third um, out of, I think there's about 22 or 23 of us. Um, so right near the front. Uh, and uh, shortly behind me, there was a couple pretty good cyclists. Joe Gambles was one of them. I'd actually rode with him some at Santa Rosa. Um, and so after the, the meeting, I talked to him and... He actually was excited about the idea of me riding with him and hoping to run with me as well because uh, we'd pushed each other quite a bit at Santa Rosa. So it was going to be you know, just another version of that. Mutually um, beneficial. Mutually beneficial. And so I talked to Matt about that that night, and uh, that was what we decided was the you know, optimal strategy. You know, I'd rode with him before. Uh, you know, that small legal draft you can get uh, six bike lengths back you know, does make quite a difference. Even if he is a stronger cyclist than me, I should be able to stick with him. So race morning, um, you know, I start out a little bit on the easier side just to kind of save it um, till he catches me so that um, I'll have a little bit more. And when uh, he caught me, uh, I settled in right where I wanted to be, although I was actually two people back from him. Um, and then the guy ahead of me decided to let him go. Uh, and so I then had to make that jump up to him and quickly realized why he had, the, the guy ahead of me had let him go. Um, I, you know, it was just substantially more power than what we had been doing. Um, and so, you know, I normally target, you know, say we'll call it 260 Watts, maybe for something like this. Um, I was holding 300 or more to try to stay with him and it, so was he not executing his plan or yeah, no, he was just riding really well. Joe's very up and down. Yeah. He's not going to listen to this. So. I don't mind saying it. Like he, when he's on, he's like one of the ten best seventy point three people in the world. Like he, I mean, I legitimately think he could be like top ten in worlds. Like you take his best day out of the year, it's it's up there. Um, but he also has like quite a few. Some some of his results are some of the best like best one day races you'll ever see. But then his typical result is not um, on par with that. 
but he had a really good day. Yeah. I mean, he, he, he admitted he'd made some like minor adjustments on his bike and he, his power was a lot higher too for that day. So, you know, even after he, uh, he knew he was, he was racing well. Um, and I tried to stay with him for maybe, I don't know, five, 10 minutes and quickly realized that was not sustainable and some combination of mentally letting him go and then or maybe it was just physically i couldn't stay with him i don't know really which was it which was it more but um i let him go and um so as an aside uh you mentioned that for the professionals the draft legal distance is six bike lengths yeah now i've done plenty of amateur races and there the distance is three bike lengths now three bike lengths is you know, not so bad to judge by eye, but six seems awfully far to judge kind of on your own. How hard is it to practice that? I mean, did you get out there with like, did you literally have six people between you and another person? And then you're looking at it. Did you ever like actually measure it with a measuring tape or like, how did you even guess what the right distance is? No, just eyeball. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I try not, you don't think too hard about it. Um, I think those lines on the road end up being about that, right? They're this, pretty close. The They're spacing. like 12 meters or 15 meters. Um, the, like the reflectors on the road, um, you, what I did, like if I'm concerned about it, like at Kona when there were refs everywhere and there was a lot of blatant drafting, I like one of the refs came up beside me and I tell the kids to do this too, like they're people. I like said, can you tell me how close I can get to the guy in front of me? And I rode close. Like I kept moving up and looking at the ref and eventually the ref was like right there. And then I just looked at that and I was like, all right, so at least now I have a visual because like in all honesty, like Really, like and, and it's, it's probably very... it's probably going to depend on your ref in all honesty yeah. because how they see six bike lengths might be different than how the ref the last race saw it which is i think why some pros get really upset when they get a penalty it's like well i did this in the last race and it was fine with the ref there now all of a sudden you're giving me a, a penalty here like yeah and there's a the... lot of judgment in it like at the bottom of a hill like at the trough of a hill where you get closer because the speeds change some refs are like oh we get that that's not like we're not going to make you pass the whole group. Um, other refs are like very letter of the law. Like, yeah. If you bunch up on this hill, we're going to give you the penalty. And so our ref actually did the night before at the meeting told us that, hey, I, I know things can bunch up on the turns, but you know that as well. And I will not I will not give you forgiveness on that. If, if it bunches up and you look at me like, oh, I didn't know why that happened. I'm going to give you the penalty. So, you know, we. He was very explicit about that, like bunching will not be tolerated on yeah, the turns, and like, wait, including the turns. So you had to like, if the person in front of you slowed down, you had to slow down too to maintain. Yeah, and that meant, that meant you had to slow down early, right? So as you're coming into the turn, you had to be already slowing down for their slowdown. And as they're accelerating out of the turn, you're just initiating the turn. Yeah. So that makes it a lot harder to stay with them then because you get more of yeah. the rubber banding effect that cyclists are familiar with. Yep. And it's different from organization to organization, like at Collegiate Nats, which is just straight USAT, they allow the bunching um, for a given distance, whatever they, I don't remember how many meters, but there's an invisible mark before the turn and an invisible mark after the turn, and you're allowed to bunch up within that area, and then you just have to re-spread out. Okay, so you let this guy go because he was going much harder than you expected. Yep. So then what did you do after that? Yeah, so then uh, I kind of fell back in uh, with the other guy, actually. Uh, he finally passed me back about 20 minutes later, maybe, that I'd gone by before Joe and kind of settled in behind him and rode there till 
mile 35, mile 40. And then I could just feel my legs starting to kind of fall apart. You know, I'd burn too many matches trying to stay with Joe. And uh, uh, I guess uh, what I would call it is I was starting to pop. Um, and uh, once <laughs> once that kind of starts, there's sometimes, you know, it's, you can fight it, but uh, there's a lot of fatigue going through your legs and it's, it's a lot of suffering. Um, so I watched my power kind of fall off. I couldn't stay with him anymore. In the last like 10 or 15 miles, I was just praying to get in. Like I just wanted to, you know, get, get down with the bike and get to the run, which is where I, I knew I would still be, I could still be strong again. Um, so as, have you ever popped as an amateur as well? Yeah. Uh, I actually popped a lot, uh, <laughs> the first couple of races as a pro, um, that was pretty much every race I did as a pro to start with, like the first two years, I didn't have the cycling skill or ability really to stay with everyone, but I would try because that was the really the optimal strategy. Um, and I would pop a lot sooner, <laughs> which meant I would have a lot further to go on my own at that lower power. But um, up until this race, this season, I'd actually been pretty successful about staying with. And, you know, part of it is sometimes, you know, maybe I didn't take the same risk. Um, you know, there's, there's kind of a trade-off every time. How, who do you try to stay with? And and what are they doing that day? And what are they doing that day? Exactly. You know, one day I was able to stay with Joe. And then today... You know, for a lot more power, I was not able to stay with Joe. So, um, you know, that's how these things go, though. That's why you, you race a lot and um, get after it. So psychologically, when you see yourself slowing down and you see yourself or feel yourself getting weaker, it's got to be really easy to start getting down on yourself or feeling like, oh, I'm going to have a crappy race. Why do I even bother? Can, you know, should I even finish the race? Should I pull out now? What would you tell like an amateur who experiences something like this? Um, well, I mean, I think it's all about trying to frame it right in your head. Um, you know, even though I knew my power was dropping pretty quickly, I was still trying to have like a lot of pretty positive self-talk. Um, again, you know, I knew if I could get to the run, I could still do quite well. And so, um, you just kind of frame it like, all right, yeah, my powers fall off. I didn't, couldn't quite execute how I wanted to, but there's still a lot of race left that I can still get after. Uh, I think trying to you know, break it down to just, all right, I just got five more miles. I just got five more miles, you know, just got pushed through that and then get to the run and then the run. It's, it's a whole new beast. It's, I'm going to just take it from there. And I think, you know, trying to break it down to those bite-sized pieces makes it a lot easier for me. So once you got onto the run, you start feeling more confident about your prospects because this is the part that you know really well. Yeah. And that's the thing I've been able to execute very well in the past. Um, you know, both tired and rested or, both like feeling good off the bike and feeling really crappy off the bike. I've been able to run well off of both. So just cause I'm super tired off the bike doesn't mean I can't run well. So must be nice. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I think it's always, you know, it's almost like a little reset button when I get there. Um, if I bike super hard, I mean, inevitably it is going to slow my run down some, but it seems I can still run on pretty tired legs. I guess that's one of the things that sets you apart from many other triathletes is, your tremendous run fitness allows you to just do so much after having put in so much work on the bike. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I imagine as I get better and kind of mentally stronger on the bike, that probably will actually take away from my run. Some, I mean, there is definitely a trade off there and I've already seen a little bit of that. Um, 
but yes, it's, it's something that's super helpful to know I can lean into and it's fun to be able to just chase people down. So even if you're further back in the race, you're not out of the race. So then how did the run go for this race? Um, I started out well. Um, so one of the fun things about this race is they actually offered a run preem, which was, uh, fairly unique to this race. I don't, I haven't really heard of it before. I'd never heard of it. Um, where they, there's this fairly big hill which i will admit matt warned me about but i didn't really appreciate nobody believes they have hills in texas but uh they do in central texas it gets pretty big well they're supposed to be big hills right because it's texas and everything's, yeah, everything's big. bigger in texas <laughs> that's true um no but matt had warned me there's oh yeah there's big hill he described it as a little bigger than dp dos pueblos dos pueblos there we go yeah it's on cathedral oaks it's the hill right next uh-huh. to the high school he described it as being a little bigger than that i'm gonna say it is quite a bit bigger than that <laughs> um, been, i haven't been there in a long time longer but or steeper both longer i don't think it's steeper okay probably yeah i just, think it's just longer longer yeah yeah i think yeah you're probably right just it's longer steep at the top it yeah. like gets steeper as you go which is part of the i mean you're also tired so it may i've never run dp hill when I was that tired. That's so, true. It, I never had a problem with the hills in Waco. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the seg- there's a segment actually, and it was only in the first lap that um, the top three pros would get uh, a small prize purse on that run segment. So um, did you have to be in the top three at the time or just for that segment only like a Strava segment? Just like a Strava segment. So and it had to be in the first lap. And so uh, me and Matt had kind of talked about this. We're like, well, actually... You know, if I'm out of the hunt for the money, um, for like the overall money, like I should just focus on getting this run preem. And so um, it was kind of up to my girlfriend, Laura, to give me the feedback on whether I was uh, in the hunt for the, you know, podium top six, which would give pay out uh, to those pros. Um, And how did she do? We got to work on it. Um, It was hard. In her defense, it was very hard because uh, we because of that time trial start we were really relying on the app to figure out what position I was actually in and how, how the time gap was. And I think she got a little confused that I came in like eighth or so, um, eighth across the line. But remember I started third. So that means five people or so already passed me and everyone behind me could have started quite a few minutes back. So even if they had caught me by quite a bit, I might still be quite a ways back. I think I haven't looked carefully, but I think maybe I was like 15th or so off the bike. Um, and I was several minutes out of um, the podium. And so in retrospect, what I should have done is just gone really easy for that first mile and a half to the start of the segment and just put all my eggs in that basket. But you don't really know beforehand who's all going to go for it and how, how they're going to do. As it turns out, no one really went for it from what I can tell. It was just the fastest three runners pretty much got the fastest three times. But so I, I did try to like kind of mentally, you know, focus on that. So when I went across that line, I picked up the pace a little and, and really tried to actually go after it. Um, but, you know, I could tell as I'm watching everyone go, you know, I'm not really making up a ton of time. It's, it's really hard to judge speed when someone's coming the yeah. other way and stuff. But, you know, as I'm going up the hill, you know, mile and a half in, I see the leaders coming down, which is about to be mile four. So I know I'm, you know, two and a half miles back and, and that's not I can do the feeling. math in my head, and I know that no matter you know how if I run two minutes a mile, <laughs> I'm still five minutes down. Yeah, so <laughs> I'm starting to very quickly realize I'm I'm actually a ways out, but I'm already committed at this point. I've crossed the line. There's nothing I can do at this point, and so I just kind of kept after it. Did the there's like this little loop up there, and some other 
small out and backs. And then as I was coming down the big hill that we'd come up, I noticed my chip was kind of bouncing, my timing chip. And then all of a sudden, I couldn't feel it anymore. And so I realized my chip had just fallen off. And so like my instinct immediately was, oh, crap, I got to go find that chip. I need to get this split for the next thing to maybe stand a chance to get in this run preem. And so I quickly stop, turn around, look down on the ground, don't see it, of course. And then I start kind of walking, jogging my way up the hill, looking for my chip, trying to find it. I'm like, all right, if it you know only cost me 15 seconds, not a big deal. Well, that 15 seconds quickly turned into a few minutes as I was looking on this hill. And at that point, you just feel kind of committed to find it. Um, <laughs> and, and so I'm watching all my competition go by me. And there's a few guys I know, like asking me what's going on. Are you cramping? Are you having problems? I'm like, no, I just lost my timing chip. Um, and I, there's like some guys on the, the hill. I'm like, can you guys help me find my timing chip? And yelling at them to come down and help You're me. You're already and, so far behind. Yeah. And then, yeah, it was it was frustrating. No, it was, these were just the spectators. Oh. <laughs> it was just spectators. They were just watching. I was like, come on, you can help me out. Um, finally, I did find it. It was So it was just the chip itself had fallen off, the orange little piece. And it was like the orange side down with the little green plate up. So it was like blending in with the pavement. That's why I had such trouble finding it. But, um, yeah, shouldn't have looked for it. Uh, we're going to talk about that a little bit more later but um did find it continue on my race kind of caught a few more people that had passed me while i was looking for it um had to go do the hill again kind of you know in these races you're kind of all by yourself everyone's spaced out like a few minutes apart so it's you know it's sad yeah you're just you're chasing after someone that you see off in the horizon and trying not to get caught by the guy that you maybe see on a turn way out so you know, kind of hard to push yourself, but I still wanted a good time on the run. You know, I was going to still like be able to look at my GPS. So, you know, I had a little pride there to kind of keep me push, keep pushing. Um, and then while I was up on the top, I noticed my chip fell off again. So I think the Velcro on that thing must have been a crap. At that point, I didn't notice it had fallen off till many minutes later, probably. And so I just was like, screw it. I'm going to finish this race. We'll see what happens. Uh, and yeah, got to the finish. As I came across, I made sure my bib like had my name like real clear on front and i told someone like within like a minute of crossing the line i'm like hey my timing chip fell off hopefully you still got a time on me told the ref right away and then he had told them but they had already figured out turns out they actually like take pretty good time as um, people come across the line so in retrospect the moment my chip fell off i shouldn't have worried about it i should have just gone after the race as usual but now that's not actually advice that you would give to an amateur right no, that's the advice i would give them really just keep if, going if you're wearing a gps watch yeah, just keep go- make sure your bib is showing so they can get pictures. But every race you do, there's like a flyer that says you got to return your timing chip or they're going to charge you 25 bucks or something. Well, yeah, but I'm talking like an amateur. How much how much did you pay for that race? Number one, including like entry fee. Got let's not include your equipment, but the travel. So what's another twenty five dollars, right? To save like five minutes on your results. Like if your chip, if I'm racing my Ironman next year to get to Kona and that thing comes off. I might stop the first time, but if it's like flapping around, I'm probably just going to like get rid of it. And I actually did a race where, uh, as I was running into the water, it came off. No, you got to just let it go. Cause you have a watch, you have your GPS watch that if you want to spend like all day there to like solidify the result, they'll do it. I mean, they'll listen to you. They're not just going to DQ you on the dot. But I think that's a fear uh, that was that when I, when it happened to me, I'm like, I don't know if they'll give me a, a t- like a finish time. If you don't have a GPS, then, you know, buyer beware, because you could just be lying. 
Like I, I wouldn't expect you to like get an award if you show up without a timing chip and no GPS to show you did the course. Yeah. I mean, I think as it turns out for me, it was like, you know, I took 13th place, like, no, I'm not taking anyone's money. I'm not like, yeah. They're like, if this kid wants it bad enough to lie about this, he can have it. (laughs) What's 13th place. You know, they don't care. Yeah. I've actually gotten in the habit now of, um, after I wrap the timing chip around my ankle, I will use a safety pin yep, yep. to take the Velcro so, and attach it so that it cannot come off. Well, and so, okay, so you would have one safety pin there. The, the, the timing chip I had actually, like, could have come off altogether. So I would have needed a safety pin on both sides of the He just had a chip. faulty yeah. chip. It was the... It was like the Velcro The piece. Velcro was not threaded through the orange thing? Yeah, no, no, no. It, like, it, it just attached to, like, the other side. Like there, it, it wasn't sewn into the... Yeah. It was oh, velcroed on both sides. Yeah, okay, which is so like when I put it on the second time, I didn't even notice that the first time that it was that way. Um, but when I put it on the second time, I actually pulled because I was trying to pull the orange chip far enough that it would be right next to where I thought the sew was, and then I just pulled it right off. And like, oh crap! Like it can go both ways. I uh, I definitely agree that safety pins a, a nice safe thing. Apparently, Devin duct tapes hers. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. I didn't know um, that. So like as in duct tape around her ankle. Yeah, she just duct tapes her chip to her ankle. I just don't worry about it that much. Yeah. Well, you're evidently more casual about it than some people. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm more casual about a lot of things than some people. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think safety pins, though, are like pretty, pretty simple and then will keep it there. And I think, honestly, if I ever had a, a timing chip come off, I would expect it to be like as you're peeling off your wetsuit or, you know, something or someone like grabs that. it. On or, the yeah, exactly. I, I wouldn't think it would ever happen once you're already to the run. Like just the mere fact that bouncing was enough to like knock it loose that velcro could not have been very good okay so you got 13th overall which unfortunately wasn't quite enough for mm-hmm. the money no um, not even close. now if you just to kind of summarize if you were going to do something different next time if you were doing the exact same race you would have stuck to your bike plan a little bit more no i mean that was my bike plan oh okay uh, so it, it, we me and matt had talk i was going to go with joe um we could have maybe put a, a cap on the power maybe me and matt could have been like all right if you're holding over 300 watts you know, but the, the problem is you don't know that, that they're going to keep holding that. So if they're holding, if you're holding 300 to stay with them for a few minutes, they might just be trying to drop you right then and there. Um, since I had talked to Joe before, I didn't think that was really the case, but, uh, so that's the calculus that you have to play is if someone's faking you out because you expect them to go less, you know, are they just trying to drop you or are they really feeling really good? And, well, and, hold and that's it? actually the thing at the beginning in a normal triathlon for the pros at the beginning of the bike, people will absolutely smash it because they don't want people to stay with them. They want to break that group up right away. And so you just have to, if you want to be in that group, you have to put yourself out there and be willing to go far more power than you're going to actually hold for that race under the assumption that it will all slow down and that you will have then stayed in the race. And and then you will your, your investment will pay dividends. Yeah, if you look at, pro power outputs for almost like the smaller iron mans that's not but like at kona essentially the highest power that cameron Worf put out was the first 20 minutes and then it dropped by 20 every 20 minutes it was less watts after that all the way in so it's you know his average is his average but he was 20 watts over that for the first hour and then 10 watts over it and then add it and then dropping down as they come in really so it was only uh so the the dynamic range there was only like 20 watts total well i'm i'm talking like average they also they'll push it more depending on the incline like uh, on a climb they'll push it more but um the first 
hour of a competitive <laughs> Ball there. the uh first hour again like we keep talking about kona the first hour is everybody's highest average hour power for that race if you're in it if you're a pro that's in the race that's your highest hour is the first hour if you're an age grouper don't do that but if you're a pro yeah i mean and you know it's it's a little bit depends on the person um where you swim if you trained for that mm -hmm. and we kind we we structure the training to do that where there's a lot of stuff at 300 watts during and a set where you're doing other stuff at half Ironman wattage. But having that like legal draft is could be 15, 20 watts. And so if you think about, you know, how much that is, that's going to translate to a lot of time if you can kind of stick in there. So you're willing to go, you know, 20 watts, 30 watts over your kind of, you know, goal power to maybe be able to stay in there for quite a while and, and save a lot of time. So even if you do kind of fall out the back of that, you might save more time having stayed in there for two thirds of the race than, and uh, dropping out right away. Yeah, and if they paid twenty deep, that'd be another thing. But they pay six, seven, eight deep. So at every race, seventh, eighth, or ninth does you absolutely no good. So, so you might as well keep you yourself have, in the race. You have to go, <laughs> yeah, because not everybody's going to blow up. So is that specific strategy? Let's see. That may have less of an impact next year except for kona because of the fact that the rules are changing and then maybe less of the pros will want to race each other but in, so, the, in the iron mans but in 70.3s that's always going to be the case and um, it's more about the money there too i yeah. think i mean you know i don't think i'm racing for the points no or, i mean obviously now with the way they've changed the system but even before i don't think i would have been caring about those points and relatively speaking like 70.3 waco is much more of a race than any ironman in the world outside of kona like those are using the term race is using race loosely they're all doing an eight hour time trial pretty much outside of kona um it's just a different it's so long you can only do a couple of them a year lots of guys the really the faster guys are just trying to do it to get to kona using and win as much money as they can expending as little energy as possible so what's next on your race list? So it's the uh, the new um, Ironman 70.3 down in um, Palm Springs area, Indian Wells, La Quinta, um, 70.3. And have you guys started to develop a race plan for that yet? No, no. I mean, it. honestly, the race plans aren't that different um, from race to race. It's going to be the same caliber field. Yeah. We'll, we'll take a quick look at the, the field, you know, once that's kind of posted, which is normally two or three weeks before, of which about a third won't show up. There's yeah. not much variation from 70.3 to 70.3 with the exception of something like St. George, where there's a lot more money or a lot more sponsorship coverage, like that type of stuff. That one will be more competitive. But apart from that, they're pretty flatlined mm-hmm. where Sean, if at his current fitness is going to be somewhere between fifth and whatever. 13th. If he, yeah. 13th <laughs> at pretty much everyone. Cool. Well, are you getting excited already, or is it more of one of these things where you just kind of wait until the last minute to really focus on it? I think mostly that. I mean, right now, I, I just get excited about the training kind of coming up to that because, you know, when you have a race, there's kind of a, you know, say 10 days before and then about a week after where your training is really more about like recovery, you know, A, recovering to get ready for the race before and then B, recovering from that race you just did. Um, so now, you know, we're about a week out from that race, that means I get to get back at training, which is, you know, one of the things I love best about tri- triathlon. 
Uh, are there any other interesting stories that you have from your Texas experience? Um, yeah, I guess the the other really, really notable thing about my, my race, or I guess my experience there, was the, the homestay I stayed with that Iron Man had set me up with. Um, turned out to actually be really awesome, which is not now, Not everyone may know what a homestay is. Like, what is what is a homestay? Uh, so uh, Iron Man does this thing where um, the, the pros, um, when they show up to the race, they can be uh, connected with um, a family or, you know, someone that lives in the area and they can actually stay at the the home of that, you know, whether it's a, a couple or a family and that, that family then essentially host them you know that maybe it's a couch maybe it's a bed kind of depends on the homestay um but i guess why it's notable is the 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 family i was or the the couple i was staying with um was this married couple that had lived in waco i don't know 40 years since the beginning since the beginning yeah they actually originally originally from south dakota believe it or not um and they moved down to waco right after college um for uh for a job and um they knew um it wasn't the race director but someone that was like a race organizer and um they had been asked if if they'd be willing to host um one of the athletes and they themselves were not triathletes um you know not really runners they did do some biking um you know pretty recreationally but uh were just happy to help and so when i showed up uh and they started talking to me i i didn't realize they didn't know that i was actually a, a professional and so as we were talking they're like oh you're a pro someone warned us we might get a pro (laughs) and so they were super excited and um yeah and it was just a lot of fun with them they uh i've i've heard some horror stories of homestays which is part of why i was like hesitant to try it um but what kind of with matt's connection there i was like a little bit more willing to to give it a go and uh it really turned out to work out well for me they uh they took me and lauren as though we were family um they uh welcome to texas yeah exactly i mean matt had warned me how nice everyone was but i have to assume this is slightly unusual um <laughs> uh, they cooked us they wanted to cook us, cook us like every meal um but i just didn't want to Did you impose. get their email and their number so you can just stay there every year yeah no they, and they okay. after after the event they they told me they want me to come back every okay, year cool i'll come um <laughs> they yeah they were super they have like this cute little bouchon dog which is like very similar to my mom's dog so it's just a cute little thing. Although it it didn't like me, I don't know why. Kind of yelped at me a lot, but um, I think I think I grew on it a little. But didn't it'll get to know you he, over he, the years. He didn't like Laura either at first, but somehow Laura was able to connect quicker. So, um, but yeah, no, we had a great time. They took us out to dinner one night. Um, they wouldn't even let us pay. I figured all right, this is at least my one chance to to make it up to them, and they would not let me pay. Which I, I yeah, I'm definitely staying there next year. <laughs> um, yeah, they were super nice. They my one night that they cooked us dinner. My uncle and um, cousin were there, and I was like, oh, I I should meet up with my uncle and cousin too. Um, do you mind if they come? And and Candy was like, oh yeah, yeah, definitely have them come. And so my uncle and cousin got to enjoy it too. So they took my whole family in as family, which was pretty amazing. Wow, what a great story. But I don't think that's how they all go. So we'll have to hear um, another episode about some Matt's, uh, you know, horror stories. Just the bad ones. Those are the entertaining ones. (laughs) Yeah, Matt has a wealth of interesting stories. All right. Well, that's all the time for we have today. So thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.